Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I am your host, Megan Hall, psychology grad student, spouse, mom, and advocate for change. On this podcast, I provide a space for women to share their stories. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today and enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, quick trigger warning before we get started. We are going to be talking about a couple of topics that might be a little much, um, including genocide. So if you're not in a space to listen to anything like that, you can revisit or um, just skip it completely. Uh, if you're, you don't think you'll ever be in the space for that. We have plenty of podcast episodes that are really great, um, but I always try to do a trigger warning before we get started. So today we're here with Taban. Uh, Taban is a former child genocide survivor who fled Saddam Hussein's regime, which, um, yeah, we, I mean, I hope anybody listening knows who Saddam Hussein is. Um, in the 1980s, she is the founder of Lotus Flower, a nonprofit that works with Kurdistan, Northern Iraq with freedom or female conflict survivors. The charity improves the economic, social, and cultural chances for vulnerable women and girls, and to date has directly supported over 40,000 beneficiaries. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I told you this is my second uh, interview in a day, so like my brain is like, oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) That's Uh, okay. Yeah. And, and they're both like very, um, intense, uh, interviews. The last one is, uh, when we're talking, it's airing this Friday, but by the time people listen, it's like many Fridays ago, it's a bonus pod and it's somebody who's Ukrainian. Uh, so we're talking about that, which is like a really heavy topic too. So yes, <laughs> Thank you for get, get, get ready, get ready. It's just, uh, yeah, it's just a lot. Um, so my brain is like, woo. Uh, so yeah, in your bio, you mentioned that you're a genocide survivor. Uh, I would love for you to kick it off and just tell us a little bit about that um, and, and what that was like, because I'm sure people listening cannot even imagine um, being in that situation. Okay. So I guess to kind of shed some light and put some context into it, it's important that I say that Um, I'm Kurdish so I'm Kurdish I'm from um, I would say Kurdistan but technically Kurdistan is not on the map that it's we're the largest nation state without a state of our own so we're split between four regions and one of them is um, Iraq so northern Iraq and at that time under Saddam Hussein's regime Saddam Hussein didn't like the Kurds and you know he had a pan-Arabist ideology where he wanted you know, everyone that was there to kind of accept they were Arabs, um, Kurdish culture, Kurdish language, Kurdish history. It's very, very different. Like you couldn't tell me that I am Arabic. You couldn't tell me I'm Turkish. You couldn't tell me that I'm Persian. I'm Kurdish. I speak Kurdish. And, you know, it's, it's a very distinct ethnic group. Um, and so at that time, Saddam Hussein would basically kill anyone that was part of a cause that was fighting for Kurds and the part of the Kurdish cause in defending our identity and defending our rights and my father at the time was a freedom fighter so he would defend the lands where the Kurds were 
with other freedom fighters, but he was also, so we call them Peshmerga. Um, he was also a, uh, a poet. So he was writing poetry where people were kind of invoked to uprise and kind of join the movement. So it's important to kind of give that context to understand why we were in the position that we were. And so because my father was involved in that way, the way that Saddam Hussein would capture these families was by taking um, by capturing the men was by taking the families and the way that they would do that was very different in different um, ways but for us it ended up being uh, one day so my mum worked at that time so she was working in quite a famous factory as an accountant at that era and the days that she would take off she would sneak off to see my dad in the mountains um, but they had secret police in workplaces as well so every time she went and took a day off they would interrogate her to find out where she'd been and she couldn't put up with this for much longer so she left her job the day after she left her job um secret police turned up to my grandmother's house so we were living at my grandmother's house at the time and I remember being at playing in the garden um when the actual gate door was you know knocked and it, it startled me and so when my uncle ran out to open the gate I ran towards him instantly and just stood in front of him thinking it would be family members that was gonna walk through the gates when actually when he opened it it was two um, Iraqi soldiers standing there um, and uh, as he opened the door they kind of looked at him and he knew instantly what was happening and asked that they asked for my mother and said we needed her for questioning we we're just going to ask some questions we you know nothing's going to happen and he tried to deter them by patting his hand on my head and saying oh is this you know she's left him because of this child obviously it was made up and he he was trying to deter them from moving forward they 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 asked for divorce papers of which she didn't have any um and still continued, okay, we, we need to take her in for questioning. And at that point, when she came out, they looked down at me and said, oh, seeing as this is his child, we'll take her as well. And, you know, the adults were devastated. They didn't want me to, to be taken. I was four at the time. Um, we were taken to a prison. The first prison was just a general prison with all sorts of criminals so as a four-year-old walking in it was quite scary I remember lots of people staring at us just just staring as in who these who's this family walking in you know yeah. um, they interrogated the adults to try and get as much information out of them and you know they wouldn't give anything away so after that they took us to another prison which was more like an ethnic camp um, and it was a prison con which consisted of you had two the men were in a separate one and the women and children were in another one so we were taken my grandmother my mother and myself were taken to the women's um, and children's section and my grandfather was taken to the men's section it's quite a long story so <laughs> You're fine. I've, got five, I've got five more minutes before I tell the whole story um, so <laughs> we, we we, I've, I've tried to train myself to condense this down because it really is such a journey. Um, so after that, we were taken to the prison and it was completely packed, like back to back with women and children. There was no space to sleep. My mum had to fight for space for me and my grandma to sleep at least. And she sat up and didn't actually lie down. 
Um, we spent about two to three weeks there. And after that, the um, some names were called out of some particular families and our name was on that list. We didn't know why we'd been called out, but we were all herded outside. And as soon as we were herded outside, uh, the adults started screaming and crying and begging the soldiers not to kill them. And they were like diggers in front of the buses. Oh, wow. I didn't know at the time what, what that was for, but it was for a mass live burial. And that's what they were doing at that time, the way that they would kill Kurds as part of the genocide campaign was that they would herd them together, make them watch the, the holes being dug with the diggers and then throw everyone in alive and then slowly shuffle foil, uh, soil over them. So they had a very slow torturing death. Oh, wow. um, and the adults knew that this was gonna happen. So for them, but as soon as we went onto the buses, it was it was a very eerie silence and just whispers of prayers as if to say, OK, well, we're going to be killed. This is the end. So we might as well just pray. And that happened. And then halfway through driving, the buses stopped. Something must have happened outside. We don't know how. But at that time, you had Kurds working for Saddam Hussein who were actually working for Saddam Hussein. But then you also had Kurds working for Saddam Hussein, but they were actually working for Kurds to try and rescue them at times like this. So this was what we had. And they had an exchange of drivers. And when we started driving again, then it suddenly stopped again and the doors opened. And these two drivers said, we're Kurdish. We're not going to kill you. We're here to rescue you. you we're going to release you at the end of the road but you need to basically disappear as if you're dead because you're meant to be dead. If you're found again, you'll be killed on the spot. And so we made our way to the road and my grandfather stopped a taxi. And this is so weird, but the taxi happened to be one of his former students, his old students, who turned around and said, what are you doing here in the middle of nowhere with your family? And at that time, you couldn't really tell anyone what was happening. So he said, don't ask any questions, just drive and sneak us back into the city. So we went back. My, I mean, it was too obvious for us to go anywhere that they would search. So we didn't go back to my grandmother's house. My mum decided we should go back to um, my step auntie's house, which was my step sister for my mum because um, it was most probably the least likely place that they would look and when we walked in everyone was wearing black and they were almost starting our funeral because a message had got to them that we were buried alive and that's the last that they knew is that we had been buried alive with part of that group of people so they were very shocked to see us um, and my dad had somehow sent a message to my mum to say that she needs to leave the city that night and so she did, but decided to keep my brother with the family because they didn't know that he existed. So he said, if she said, if we get caught again, then at least he's saved. Um, but myself and my, my mother had to go in hiding in the south of Iraq, which is Arab populated and in a place called Doania. And that would be least likely for it to be searched because again, don't really expect many Kurds who are uprising to live there. She had a stepbrother there, so we stayed with my uncle and had to stay indoors for three months because I was a child and I spoke Kurdish, so that I would have 
given it away very easily my mum could go out because she could speak Arabic and so there was there was like she could have more of a cover-up but I wasn't allowed out and I remember that very clearly um and then after that my mum put her foot down and said I I, I can't continue living like this you know we're either going to die or I can't continue hiding you have to get out of this country so my dad finally agreed and said okay meet me in Iran so for 12 months, we went from village to village and hiding and hiding like, and this is during the Iran and Iraq war. So bombs were dropping down in the rural villages during this time because it was an active war. Um, so we were trying not to get killed from the active war during with Iran and, and Iraq, but also from Saddam Hussein not killing us. Um, so t- spent 12 months fleeing and finally reached Iran we picked up my brother along the way obviously finally reached Iran um, on horseback and at night we were smuggled in and as soon as we were there we went into a family's home and we stayed there and waited for my dad to join us but Saddam Hussein had hired a group of hired a husband and wife to poison a group of Kurdish men And my dad was on that list and there was about 14 of them. So this husband and wife were Kurdish and they laid out this massive feast to try and entice the Peshmergas to come and eat. And it's, you know, in our culture, food is massive. You feed everyone, you overfeed people. And when, you know, they they put the poison in the, we have like a yogurt drink, Mastal, it's like Aidan. And they put the poison in that drink. So they sat down to eat the food because they knew there's no poison in the food. But the men that drank the drink quickly, like there was a few men that gulped down the whole drink in one go, they died on the spot. And as soon as two died, they realized, oh, gosh, we've been poisoned here. And then my dad and two other men were just started becoming critically ill. Um, By this time, the husband and wife had kind of fled the scene. I think they were later caught at borders by the Peshmerga. But my dad and the two other men were taken to Iran instantly to get medical treatment. And that's when Amnesty International picked up on my dad's story and flew him to the UK for medical treatment. And we had to wait about a year before we were reunited with them, with him. So, yeah, it was quite a, it was quite a journey, but, but that's the story in short. <laughs> when you were like, I'm going to keep it short. I'm like, it's a 45 minute podcast. We're okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and people listening might notice that you have, um, an accent from the UK. So you and your mom and your brother ended up in the UK with your dad. Yes. Yeah. So after a year we were, we were flown into the UK. And I remember the first time we went on the plane, when we came off the plane, I remember seeing people from different ethnicities and backgrounds. I would never seen someone who was, you know, Asian. We'd never seen someone who was black. We'd never seen um, someone who was Chinese. Like we, so many different experiences that we'd never ever seen before in our country. We were experiencing just from coming off the plane. I'd never seen men with long hair. Um, it was. Yeah, it was very memorable. And just that first time, because we landed at nighttime and so you could see the lights from, you see when you're on the aeroplane, you see the lights on the land. Yeah. Just seeing those lights was so mesmerizing and scary at the same time as well. Wow. Yeah, I can't, I, well, I can't imagine the culture shock because up where I'm from uh, in 
in Northern New York, like Canada, very, very tippy top. There's not a lot of diversity. Um, so I had really never seen a Brown person in my life. Um, maybe a few black people like, and that was mainly when I was in college. It was not even like when I was a kid. Uh, so when I moved to Virginia, um, with my spouse and we live near Virginia beach, it's a melting pot of people, right? Cause there's like 10 military bases and people come from all over the United States. And it was, it was a shock to me because I was like, I've never seen people who look like this besides on movies and in television, right? I'd never seen such a diverse amount of people before. So even at like, what was 24, 24, 25, even at, at that age, I was just like, holy yeah. For, for us it was one step further we'd not even seen it in well I mean me as a young child I don't remember it in tv as well you know we only had um Arabic Iraqi state tv that's you know it, it was completely new we'd never seen a white person you know uh, yeah. someone someone I'd never seen anyone apart from someone who looked like me Middle Eastern and Kurdish and that for us it was eye-opening but I think simple things like not seeing men without a moustache which was really strange because at that time Kurdish men all had moustaches all of them it it was rude not to have a moustache and so I'd never seen what a man looked like without a moustache or one with long hair it's you know this really really small things and I remember in our journeys you know when we're being bombed and we're hiding in a cave or a bomb bunker somewhere our parents would tell us stories of oh we're going to safety and we're going to a place called France because I think that's where we were heading and they've got flavored yogurts like and it now I know it was pitifulu flavored yogurts um so many so many small details that I really, you know, have just become a complete norm to me now and I'm exposed to it so much. But back then when it was the first exposure, it was big. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, I only have a small little experience with that. So I can't even imagine being a small child and, and being like, oh my gosh, this is so much (laughs) like, wow. And did, did Saddam Hussein stop? like tracking your dad like you know going after him after yeah as soon as we came to the UK we were brought to the UK um he did make the headlines quite a bit because it was quite a big story he he spent several months in hospital and his poisoning was very you know it, it many 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 years later in the UK there was another Russian spy called Litvienko and he was poisoned and it was the same type of poisoning so he looked like him um, but we were safe after that. As soon as we arrived in the UK, we were you know, safe and protected. And you could feel that instantly. Could you still communicate with your family? At that time, no. You didn't have phone lines. You, I remember the first time we was, when we arrived in the UK, we were supported by this Christian family. We're still in touch with them. They're so lovely. Um, I remember the first time, and this was, I think, after two years, they arranged a surprise phone call for my mum to speak to her family. Mm. But at that time, like, it cost £2 a minute. So she could only say, hello, uh, I'm safe. Is everything okay? Is everyone okay? And that's it. We We couldn't have any more conversations. 
obviously times have changed now we've got the internet and we're very much in touch and but at that time there was no communication and they were you know, they knew that we'd reached the UK but there was no form or way to communicate with them apart from if someone had traveled back rarely we would send a letter and they would send the letter back yeah so what what is their experience like now how did the war in Iraq what what happened how did that change things for them did it change things for them the war that but my United family States was in yeah yeah so um so there's two <laughs> 1991 war we were in safety by then because we reached the UK in 1988 um so we were in safety I remember watching what was unfolding in the 1991 war with all the click curds fleeing and the, it, it was all on TV. So we felt so helpless. It was a really, really, really difficult time for my family because they could see everything happening on TV, but they were helpless and there was no way to communicate. So it was mm-hmm. very, very difficult. Um, they, like all the other Kurds, uh, were forced to flee and they were fleeing and they were displaced in Iran until things settled. Um, and when things settled, they moved back to um, their homes but I think they called us from Iran and that was the first time where we just knew that they were safe um, so it did it did impact them and then the second war the second war in 2003 um, because we're in the north by that time the no-fly zone had been created for the north and we had our own Peshmerga fighter forces actually we were quite protected so um, I guess the, for the Kurds, the Kurds were quite protected in the 2003 war and we didn't, we weren't in the intensity of the war as in south of Iraq. Um, so yeah, that, that's the difference between the two. Gotcha. Yeah. I can't, I can't even imagine what it's like to be sitting in a different country or watching what's going on. I mean, like I said, I just did a podcast interview with Slava who, is going through that right now, right? She lives in the United States and watching what's going on in Ukraine. Um, So I can't even imagine what it's like to sit in, you know, another country and seeing on the news and on TV what's going on in your country. I mean, you said it's uh, (laughs) not not considered a country, but, (laughs) um, you know, where you're from watching what is going on and not knowing if your family's safe and not knowing, I mean you know, until they got to Iran. Yeah. And and sadly, you know, over the years, especially Iraq and that region, there's been constant wars. So Mm. it's been a constant flux of worrying. Um, Just the other day, uh, there was 12 missiles thrown at the US embassy, actually, in my city, Erbil. Um, and that suspected it was from Iran. So there's always some form of instability and not knowing what's going to happen. And that's quite worrying. Um, you know, ISIS, for example, in 2014, when ISIS suddenly went in, it, it, they were taking over the whole region slowly. And, and so it's, it's always faced a constant conflict. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what it's like um, with the lotus flower, um, 
why, why did you start that? Usually we don't talk about people's, you know, businesses or nonprofits, like in the way of where I'm like, why did you, but what, um, what prompted you to start that? Yeah. So for me, I think everything's been connected to my past. I, I've experienced what I've experienced and I never really did anything with that. I, you know, I ended up working before I got into this field, I was working in the city um, I was a project manager, digital project manager, building technology things with a financial firm. Um, so I wasn't doing anything to kind of support or connected to my past. That's until on uh, April 2014, I did a talk at the House of Lords on Genocide Remembrance Day. And I realized that, um, that I basically it was at that point when I realized that I should be doing something connected to my past. And as soon as I realized that I needed to do something connected to my past, I had to figure out a way. Um, and actually my CEO was the massive uh, driver or encouragement or force behind that. I'd never spoken to him. I'd never worked with him. You know, you know how this big organizations work. Sometimes you yeah. don't, you never speak to the CEO, right? And so for me, I had a meeting, I, I requested a meeting with the CEO because I wanted some career advice. <laughs> and it sounds so silly, but actually for me, I thought I'm stuck. I don't know what I should be doing in life. But here, this is the only person I have access to who's a bit of a visionary. He set up this organization, he's got it to where he's got it to. And he knew my story and he knew that I'd done the talk because the organization like sent it out on the staff email and it went it was it was really nice and so for me I thought I feel like he's the right person to give me the advice he might see something I don't so when I had the meeting I, I remember sitting down going I know this is a really weird meeting I've never worked before but I actually need some advice from you you know you know that I've done the talk and I feel like I should be doing something connected to my past and and he just said to Banda, stop there. You're too special for that corner desk. Can you please just go and fly? And I wasn't expecting that. I really thought, wow, that took me aback. And I realized, oh, maybe he sees something I don't, but he is talking to whatever that feeling I have inside of me. So I handed in my notice. I think I'd sent out my CV to like a job prospects in the region. And I managed to get a job with a local organization uh, it was a foundation and I my first day of arriving to work I was actually on a helicopter flying over Mount Sinjar which was hemmed by ISIS rescuing people and delivering aid it was so different to what I was doing in the city but it was so connected to my past so it was it was so connected of the 15 months after that, I worked very closely with that organization. We did so many humanitarian aid missions, worked very closely with the women um, who were impacted by ISIS, who were sold as sex slaves, were raped, um, enslaved. And so for me, when I came back after 15 months to the UK, I just thought that there's absolutely no way I can go back to a normal job. I, I literally cannot function if I go back to a normal job. And I knew I wanted to help the women and girls that I'd met out there. But also, I knew that from a personal perspective, in terms of what my mother and myself experienced, I kind of, it just all felt right. So 
I set up the Lotus Flower with zero connections, zero money in my living room, but I knew what I wanted to do. And from that, that was in 2016 to where it is now. Um, it, it's just unbelievable how much it's all just aligned and worked. And I think it's because it's aligned with my, not just my passion and it, my experience. I guess your experience has kind of carried you through what, what you do in life. And yeah, we, we have like ref, uh, centers, women and girls centers inside refugee camps because they're so desperately needed. It's, mm-hmm. it's such a basic thing, but it's actually desperately needed. There's nowhere for women and girls to come to heal, learn and grow. And that was the mission was to bring something a space where women and girls could come to to heal learn and grow and so we have many programs that do exactly that from meditation to yoga to um, therapy to adult learning literacy to um, women's business incubators where we help them set up businesses to boxing sisters where we run boxing sessions Um, so it's 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 just so varied it's like a hub of activity but they need it you know we we forget that these camps will be there for years you know some of our donors that I went you know they started at the start to help us I did say these camps will be there for many years by the way I'm just warning you it's not like they're going to disappear overnight it's it's something that's needed it's a service that's needed and even now, you know, what's happening with Ukraine is the first thing that I think about is how are the women and girls supported? Um, and in terms of what we do, you know, you have phases in conflict and a humanitarian crisis. The first immediate phase is always emergency assistance. And it's mm. getting people to safety, providing food, water and shelter. That's like the basic things. After about a year, sadly, people start pulling out. It's no longer in the media um no one really wants to help they're like humanitarian support fatigued and it's so sad and I think it's that point that we come in and go no actually you can't forget them they're going to be here for a while they still Mm -hmm. need the help and then we do that second phase of support and it's so vital and it's it's we've seen women just absolutely flourish from it so it's it's lovely that it's also connected to there's a story behind it it's not just something Mm -hmm. I I thought of let's do this and that's it um it's been a real journey yeah um so the week I believe it's the week before this airs um Anne's episode airs and she is talking about how she works with refugees um with art therapy because she was like it might sound silly but like it is really important and they're allowed to express their feelings and 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 get everything out um, even though there is a language barrier sometimes, um, she's like, I've learned, I learned about their culture. I learned about the things they've been through. I've talked to people from the areas that they're from. I've talked to the interpreters. I, she's like, cause I wanted to understand what would help them. And it was just absolutely amazing. And I feel like, um, that's very similar to what you are talking about doing is like, these things like yoga and meditation and therapy and allowing these, you know, supports that they may not have, have never experienced in their lives before. Yeah. Yeah. And it's as strange as it sounds, a lot of the things that we provide in our centers 
had the conflict not happened, the women would never have been able to access it. Mm-hmm. For example, we have one of our most oversubscribed courses is the adult literacy. And it's because a lot of the women that were forced to flee are from rural areas and there are, you know, the older age bracket and they've never been to school and they would never have the opportunity to go to school because they wouldn't have a school close to them for them to go to. So that's given them that opportunity, but also art therapy. Yes, definitely. It's, it's, it's a, it's a form of therapy where you don't need language and not only do have we like provided it in our centers, but also I remember as a child, and it's so interesting to kind of see the impact on children, how they express it through, you know, forms of the, this kind of form of therapy. They used to make us draw. Like there were so several organizations that would support us in different things, but some would just make us draw. And I'm thinking, why are they making us draw? We didn't really do much drawing back home. What's going on here? But now as an adult, when you look at those photos or those drawings at that time, the first thing you would draw is the planes dropping bombs, the guns shooting fire. Like it was very, the tanks, the dead people, that's what you would draw at first. And over time, it starts getting into more normal things like flowers or a tree or, you know, a house. And so art therapy is very, very important. And people overlook it in in terms of Oh, what can art therapy actually do? Well, it does quite a lot. It helps people express things that they can't verbally express. Um, so it's very important, especially with children. So what else besides art therapy has helped you heal? Because I mean, that's a very traumatic, multiple traumatic events that, that most people listening probably could never imagine. Um, but I'm wondering, like, how did you heal that trauma? Because healing from trauma is so important. Um, I had trauma in my past, not nearly to that level, um, but I've had to use EMDR therapy to help me. Um, so what things have helped you? Yeah, so I think, well, one thing I'll say is, is, is trauma is trauma and it's in the context for that person. So your trauma is very traumatic in your context and it you wouldn't be able to compare it to any others like mine or yours we're all it's all trauma mm-hmm. um so there's no levels it's just different experiences i think and um for me this is a cultural thing or maybe it's not a cultural thing it's it's definitely something that exists and around the world whereby you're not really encouraged to do therapy um because we're expected to forget what happens and you just brush it under the carpet forget and get on with life and sadly that is the case especially in the Middle East and where I'm from because it's conflicts always happening it's nothing new we're almost expected to carry on with it just get on with it forget about it don't worry about it don't think about it. you shouldn't think about it and then you won't be impacted by it and so it's a learning first first step is it's been a learning behavior like we have to unlearn that to go no that's trauma that's trauma playing out in that way that's so learning and unlearning to actually understand what that what the traumas are around mental health so lots of reading for me but then for the first time and it was an adult life very very late on in adult life and I mean only 
I'd say four years ago, three years ago, where I actually sought therapy. Um, and it takes a long time to figure that out. You're like, oh, actually, maybe I do need therapy to understand lots of things and to relieve lots of trauma. So from that, I'd say the last four years has been a massive healing journey for me. And it's taken different forms. It's taken forms of um, therapy. I have heard of um, EMDR. It's meant to be very, very good, um, especially for P PTSD and you know, really traumatic experiences. Um, I haven't had that myself, but it's something that I've been looking into just for our women to support our women. Um, but then other spiritual forms of therapy, like meditation and like healing and alternative holistic approaches to healing, energy healing, um, anything that really, really helps me balance my vagus nerve and like, like the vagus nerve is a nerve that goes from the top to the bottom of our bodies. And when that is off balance, that's when we start getting ill. Like for me and the physical illness of Crohn's disease, um, it starts impacting you. So for me, I'm very conscious of that. I'm always conscious of, no, I need to rebalance to get that vagus nerve in balance. So I'm not um, impacting it. The problem with people that have experienced extreme trauma or just any form of trauma to be honest from a young age especially is that I believe is that it, it gets stored in our bodies the trauma somehow stays with us and gets stored within our bodies it's finding out a way on how to release it from our bodies and release that 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 attachment um so that's, it's been a learning curve. I don't think there's a one size fits all. And I don't think I've used one thing that's helped. And to be honest, will it help forever? No, I think the best part of the healing journey is knowing exactly what tools you need. So mm -hmm. what do I need now? Because what I experienced now might be very different from a week ago to a, a month from now. So it's knowing that you've got tools there to, to, to reach into and tap into that that can help you and mainly being open to them. Yeah. So as we wrap up the podcast today, what would you like to leave the inspired women audience with? I think I would say even look, looking at the whole journey of what I've been through and in terms of work and in terms of health and in terms of my childhood journey, to be honest, the most important thing is you and you can't be inspiring to anyone else to you can't do inspiring things you can't really do much unless you look after yourself mm -hmm. and that really is from a from a mental from a physical to a emotional and spiritual level like you you really have to make sure that you're constantly looking after yourself on those four levels because the moment you don't look after yourself is when things really really start taking a hit on you and you know you'll start it might impact your health and that might have an impact on something else so we can't really be our best versions of ourselves or do anything inspiring or do you know keep up with things if we're not looking after ourselves and to really be kind to yourself like you know the kindness that you show to yourself and and kindness to, to yourself is a simple task like actually maybe look 
maybe I might need to look into therapy. Maybe I might just need to pause a bit on work and the overload and stop overwhelming myself. It, it can be so many different things. Um, maybe do a re reflection, uh, reflection every week, every day, every month, whenever, but always reflect on what you're doing for yourself to see where you can look after yourself more and just be your biggest champion. So I have one more question. Is there a way for people to support Lotus Flower if they would like to support it? Oh, that's brilliant. Um, so they, you can go on our website, which is www.thelotusflower.org. And then there, sh there should be information there. Um, there are different ways that you can support. You can set fundraisers up as a community. You can donate if you've got particular skills. Sometimes we might be looking for people with particular skills. Um, if you know organizations that support us, but we're, we're, remember, we're quite a small charity. We're not those big charities that um, have many funds. So we really do rely on our community to help keep us going. And it's the only way that we can support the women and girls. So yeah, thank you. And our Instagram handle is at the Lotus F. Yep. I have it. Um, you Brilliant. provided it. So I will definitely link both the uh, website and the um, Instagram handle up on um, the show notes. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. I've, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.